Welcome back to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. We are currently in a series from the book of 2 Samuel. We trust you will enjoy today's message as an encouragement to your faith. Let's listen now to Kimber. Okay, you can remember, any of you can remember from 2 Samuel chapter 23 that we are in the appendix of the book. And in the appendix, the writer is, is, is putting together uh, in, a, in a poetic formula of A, B, C, C, B, A, the, the final events and perusing the history of David. And for instance, point C of this, in the two middle points, was the Psalm of David, 1 Samuel 22. The other point C, which now starts us back the other way, in this writer's mind, in this appendix, is the last words of David. The poem of David, the Psalm of David, lasts 51 verses in chapter 22. The last words of David only takes seven verses. And the next Sunday morning, we'll pick up at verse 8 as we get ready now to close. If you'll notice, take your Bibles and look there. 23, 8, turn the page, and you'll notice that's the end of 2 Samuel. When we get to 24, we were at the end. Now, stop and think about this. Here are the last words of David. Now, it's not so much anymore because sometimes when people get very sick these days, they can give them so much morphine that they're sort of passed out the last days of their life. Or sometimes people die quickly and they don't have a chance to give the last words. But it was sort of down through history, again, not so popular today, but down through history, there has been a sense where people would gather and want to listen to the last words of somebody to grant to, to gain some insight. There, there's actually a book out that is talks about the last words of great Christians and the last words of atheists and, 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 and rich and poor and all through the book, uh, 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 things that people have said. And if you'll notice verse 1 of 2 Samuel 23, the writer is giving the appendix, and wouldn't it be appropriate for the writer, remember the book ended at chapter 20, and now he's giving these appendix, and in doing so, I want you to notice that he now talks about the last words of David. Now stop and think. Here's the last words of David. His name is mentioned in the Bible more than any other man's. Here's the most popular and the most famous Bible character of all. Here's the guy that it struck us in such a profound way when we saw him victories over the giants and some of the great deeds that he did. Here was the man that beat so many Philistines and was such a godly man, a writer of almost half of the Psalms in Israel's hymn book. I mean, we look there and we hear, no, we hear about Charles Wesley and we look at some of those and we think, wow, here's a guy that wrote almost half of the hymn book of Israel. Here's a guy that was inspired to write a huge, huge section of the Bible now, and, and who is, is talked about so much. And so often we would gather around somebody at the hospital and you would bend over and you would listen to their last words and you would see what they are and people would talk about them. Well, these last words are recorded from two different angles. If you went to 1 Kings chapter 2 and you turn there, you would see that David gives last words there also. But those last words are to his son. And there he is instructing his son concerning what to do in certain situations and regarding the kingdom. These last words are for the nation. This is what would have been read to the nation of Israel. This is what would have been read to the people, saying, here's the last words of David and what he has to say. And it, it has some very significant meaning uh, to us. And notice what the verse says in verse 1. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse. Now, the word oracle is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It indicates that David is speaking as a prophet. And what he is claiming is he is absolutely a prophet as much as Isaiah or Jeremiah or even Samuel was, or Nathan. And he is saying, my words are prophetic. They are from the Lord. What I'm about to say comes directly from the mouth of God. 
And so not only are these, not only does this add to the intensity of the situation, not only is it his last words, but I'm speaking the very words of God. And by the way, most scholars also agree that he's including all of the Psalms that he wrote when he says this. In other words, he's claiming for those 73 Psalms that he wrote divine inspiration uh, for them. Now, he goes on and look at the rest of verse 1. It says, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. He gives a fourfold portrait of himself. And this is not described in terms of human achievement, but in regards to what God has done. Notice he says, I am from the root of the family of Jesse. What should that call to our mind? He was a shepherd boy. He came from obscure circumstances. Again, you see the picture of the Messiah, who is what? Has parents that are peasants and is born in Bethlehem in a barn or in a cave. Now stop and think you see the same picture of, of this. And notice the next thing, he is exalted by God. Notice the third thing, he is anointed prince. And notice the fourth thing in verse 1, he's the singer of psalms. This is, by the way, you've heard me say, the sweet singer of Israel. Whenever Spurgeon referred to David, he always referred to him, or just about always referred to him, I should say, as the sweet singer of Israel. And I pick that up and I throw it out a lot in my sermons to you. But this is where Spurgeon got it. Spurgeon got it the last of verse 1 there. Israel's singer of songs is what the NIV says, but really the, the King James says the sweet singer of psalms. The Hebrew actually says the sweet singer of psalms or the sweet singer of Israel. So here he is. He's from obscure shepherd boy, exalted by God, anointed as prince, and singer of psalms. Look, he just it's full of the grace of God. Here's what God did for me. And this is his self-description. Notice three particular links. I have been exalted by the Most High, I have been anointed by the Most High, and I am the sweet singer in Israel. I've got to sing about the Most High and what he has done. But notice what he says. He's been exalted by the Most High God. We just got done in the last chapter. This entire psalm talks about what it meant that he would exalt in God. God exalt, God did all of this for them. We just got done studying that this morning. We don't need to really go back over that. But notice the second phrase there. He says, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. Now this is so interesting. Because what is Jacob? Jacob is the great schemer. He is the God of Jacob. That is the one who transforms the twisted human material. Jacob illustrates somebody that needs, who's constantly scheming and fighting against God, and God in his mercy worked in Jacob's life. Now, now this is so significant. We sit there in our Western mindsets, and we read this, and we go, yeah, da-da-da-da-da. But you've got to read this in a Mideastern mindset. In the Mideastern mindset, listen, the kings all around claimed divinity. The Egyptian kings believed they were God. And here in this context where the kings around believe they were God, here is the ultimate king. Israel is in charge. Israel's in control. Israel's the strongest, most powerful nation around. And he says, I want you to know that I have been a man exalted by the Most High. I have been anointed by the God of Jacob, giving clear testimony that I needed to be transformed. I needed salvation is another way. We don't get that in our language, but that would be another way of saying it. David is clearly testifying to a transformation brought about by grace, unlike the pagan kings who, of course, thought they were divine. Isn't this great? Here's David. How do you view yourself? I appreciate what you said earlier, young lady. You said something about hello, and you gave your name, and I've already forgotten that. I'm sorry, but you gave your name, and you said, my Lord is my rock, and she was referring to this morning's message. And David, again, is 
overwhelmed, even in the description of himself. I was, here's what he's saying. I was just a peasant. God exalted me. God anointed me. And now I get to sing of his praise. What a way to describe yourself and what a way to view yourself. How thankful we can be for the, the emphasis of grace in the life of David. Now notice what he does in verses 2 through 3a. He gives a strong emphasis that the Lord is his source. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. Now stop right there because that's a segment that goes by itself. He is now saying, I want you all to know that God directly spoke. He is claiming the same things that you would read about in 2 Peter, that no prophecy is of its own private interpretation, but holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke. He's saying, I want you to know that the Psalms that I gave you and this last words that I'm giving you come directly from God through me as prophet to you. These are the words, the very words of the living God. And I know at this church that you, you hear this all of the time. But my friends, I talk with Christians all the time. I had a conversation with a Christian recently in which he said, can we get off this Bible stuff and get on to something about real life? That was a direct quote told me this week. Can we get off the Bible and can we get on to something that has to do with real life? Do you see, in our evangelical world, we are just lost that this Bible is not authoritative anymore. David wants you to know that the 73 Psalms that he wrote, and this very saying that he's going to give us tonight, this comes directly from God. You say, well, is there anything good? Yeah, you're going to find out what the President of the United States, what, what God wants the President of the United States to be like. You're about to find that out directly from the throne room of God. So in case you wondered, you're about to find out. Here it is, verse 3b and 4. Look what it says. It says, here's what God says. Now notice, please notice 2 and 3a again. The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me. Here's what God said. We're quoting God now. Isn't that great? We're quoting God. Look what he says. When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Now stop and think about this. The Lord is commenting to David. David is telling us, here's what God speaks directly to me. When rulers or leaders over men rule, what is it that God wants them to be? Righteous and fearing God. Just, fair, righteousness, honest, in other words. Fair is another good word. But just, in other words, be like God. You've heard me refer to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, where it says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and the rich man boast of his riches, and the, uh, 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 the strong man boast of his strength. But if you're going to boast about anything, boast about this, that you understand and know me, that I am the Lord that practices steadfast covenant loyalty, and I've hammered and hammered and hammered that to you, but have you ever considered the second word? I am the Lord who practices justice. I'm the God of... Uh, uh, I'm fair. And I want a king to rule over my people that is fair. I want righteousness. I want fairness. The second thing he says is this. He wants one who rules in the fear of God. He upholds what God upholds. He's a person that cares about God. You could do, for instance, a quick survey, perusing of the book of Proverbs, and you could find out what does it mean to live in the fear of God. Well, to live in the fear of God means to hate evil. To live in the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. To live in the fear of God means that you have a reverential awe towards God that you are deeply concerned in your life about offending God. Now stop and think. What does God want in one who leads people? He wants a person who is committed to justice and righteousness. The prophets 
hammer this out. God, the prophets say again and again, all through the minor prophets in particular, look, at God's going to stop blessing Israel if you don't start treating the poor properly. Look, at God's going to stop blessing Israel if you don't start doing this right. And You don't care. You act like this on Saturday when you go to worship, but the rest of the week you act horrible. Now, the second thing is he wants somebody who lives in the fear of God, and that is a person who is constantly aware of the presence of God and is concerned about obeying God in their life. The fear of God means that when you're all by yourself and no one sees what you're doing, that you behave in a certain way because you believe God is watching. The Pharisee only is concerned with what people see. And as long as no one sees him, then hey, he'll go do something else. But the fear of the Lord means that you are concerned what other people think. And so a person that rules in the fear of the Lord, upholding what God upholds. Look what the promise is, everybody. Look at verse 4. Look at what it says. Such a ruler is to be compared to two lovely experiences common to mankind everywhere. What are those two common experiences? Look at verse 4. He is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Let's stop and think about that. Let's just, this is, I know different texts say different things. They're a little bit, this is somewhat of a obscure, in some ways, it, 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 some guys have read that I've read that no Hebrew say it's somewhat obscure, but basically the point is this. You can see it. He is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. What is that? The sun coming up on a beautiful day when there's no clouds. What does that look like? It's orange. It gets warmer as it goes up. Everything becomes clearer. In other words, when the sun comes up on a beautiful morning in a cloudless sky, it affects everything, does it not? That's what he's trying to get you to see. Now watch the second point. Like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. The, the, the ruler here, there's just two things that everybody knows about. Sunshine and rain. Sunshine affects everything and rain affects everything. You see, when Jesus Christ said, God sends the rain upon the just and the unjust, you all know that that wasn't bad. That's not judgment. Rain is good. It's good to have rain. Anybody here a farmer? You want rain. Especially in Israel. Rain was a blessing. Sunshine to a farmer was not as much a blessing as rain, although both were necessary for the crops to grow. And here's what he is saying. Listen to this. When there is a leader that leads my people in righteousness or justice and in the fear of the Lord, and he is leading the way, such a ruler is to be compared to two lovely experiences that everybody knows about. One is the effect of the sun, and the secondly is the effect of the rain. Those things is what the leader is like. Now, what is that like? Well, it's like the effect that the sun and the rain have on the earth. In other words, what does sun and rain have on this earth? It affects it with growth, vegetation, production. So what happens? So we all can eat. Do you ever stop and think that every time you give thanks before you eat a meal, that it's because of sunshine and because of rain or you wouldn't have it? Right? And, and here's the point. The leader that is righteous, the leader that fears the Lord, has the effect that sunshine and rain has. Now let's just take sunshine and rain away from us for a few days. And again, in America, this just doesn't fit too well because we're so used to having baking stress and cooking stress and all these kinds of things. We eat all the time, right? We don't really appreciate it. But in a day where you needed all of those things, stop and think about it. The leader, when you've got a leader, if we just think, and by the way, this is it says leader of men, so he's talking about the leader of Israel, but I think it can be applied to any kind of leadership. But the leader who is a godly person who fears the Lord and who rules in righteousness absolutely affects everything. As vegetation is affected by rain and by sun, so the society will be affected by the righteousness and the fear of the Lord of the leader. You stay right there. I just want to read you one thing. Listen to this. In the 72nd 
psalm. It's entitled A Psalm of Solomon, in which Solomon makes some requests concerning the king. And listen to what he says. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. Isn't that interesting? The very thing that David just prophesied is the very thing that Solomon requested, righteousness and justice, in Psalm 72. Notice, he will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. Listen down to this. I'm skipping down to verse 8. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then down in verse 15, it says, Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people from every ever pray for him and bless him all the day. And he talks about the abundance of the crops upon the nation when the king fears God. Well, David's final words is, I want you to know, when there is a leader who fears God and is just, that it affects everything. There had to be in David's mind, by the way, Saul here. Saul did not fear God and was not fair. And look at all the things that happened. And notice verses 5-7, through seven, and we're done. Verses 5-7, through seven, and we're done. Look what they say. Is not my house right with God? We're all supposed to say yes. Has He not made me, made with me an everlasting covenant? We're all supposed to say yes. Arranged and secured in every part? Yes. You guys can answer yes if you want. You're getting the point. Look here. Will He not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? All right. Now let's look at that. David now in verse 5 through 7, and by the way, let's just read verses 6 and 7. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or a shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. David is now meditating on the Word of God in his final words, and you know what he's referring to? He's referring to Nathan's prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when Nathan, and we covered this many, many weeks ago, Nathan made this prophecy. Listen to this. I'm just going to cut into the middle of the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant. Now listen to this. He says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of the entire revelation. There was something that God did with David which is new and improved and more powerful than anything else he had done before. And he says this, Doggone it, David, I'm making a covenant with you. And I don't care if everybody acts worse than Saul, I'm keeping my covenant with you. No matter what people do, I'm keeping it. Nothing can break my covenant. This covenant has nothing to do with whether or not you're faithful. This covenant has everything to do with my promise. Now that's what David's referring to here in verse 5, back in chapter 23. When he says, is not my house right with God? Yes. 
Has he not made me, me an everlasting covenant? Yes. Arranged and secured in every part? Yes. Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? Yes. David's talking not about every desire, like I can just, I'll grab up everything I can for myself. He means for his descendants. This, my friends, is a covenant that God made with David that any of you that are in Christ tonight ought to rejoice in. Because God said, look, I'm going to bring about salvation. The son of David is going to come, born of the seed of the woman, and bring victory. And my friends, aren't you glad? What a demonstration. It's not up to us. It's up to God. We have forgotten this in our society. We've got such an emphasis on ourselves, we've forgotten it. It is secured and arranged in every part by God. It is God that does it from first to last. It is salvation is from the Lord. I don't know about you, but we can directly apply this to the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. And that is, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that may not mean much to you tonight if you're just so used to going through the motions and that's what you're supposed to say at a Baptist church. But there may be a day when that means everything to you. And that is that you have a promise from God that He will save you. It's been arranged and secured in every part. He is going to bring to fruition your salvation. I think anybody that's lived the Christian life at all understands this, don't you? Aren't you glad that your salvation is based on the promise of God and not based on whether or not you're strong enough to keep it? Oh, yes. We can rejoice in a God that does this. But David ends with one last thing. He ends with judgment. Look at this. Verse 5 is the covenant of God with him. And as Christians, we know this, but look at verses 6 and 7. But evil men are to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. That is, these thorns in Israel, you would know, there's no way you would reach down and grab them with your own hand. There's no way. They were way too precarious. It, was way too da- it would damage your skin too much. So they are to be cast aside like thorns. They're not to be gathered with the hand. Notice verse 7. Here's how you have to pick them up. Whoever touches them uses a tool or an iron or a shaft of a spear. And they're to be burned up wherever they lie. Well, you see, friends, like the farmer who, who throws away useless and dangerous thorns and burns them up where they lie, and he only touches them with a tool. So he's talking now about the judgment, both brought about by the government. What, is Revel- what does Romans 13 say? What's the purpose of the government? To reward good and to punish evil. And what's the purpose, again, of the great judgment day? What will it be? God will judge the wicked. And he concludes with this, this emphasis of judgment. Now, Four quick things by way of application. Number one, this may sound a little bit strange, but it's interesting to think about. Preparation for death is not some morbid exercise. David's last words, breathed out by the Spirit of God, are full of active discipleship, said Matthew Henry. Imagine that. Full of active discipleship, his last words. He tells, he honors God, he edifies people with his last words, he tells what God has done, he speaks of the covenant, and he's being very clear about good and evil. There ought to be, I tell you, I really think if you take these two chapters together, 22 and 23, there ought to really be, plan plan your funeral. Tell people what you want to have done there. Let's hope you don't die for a long time. But if you do, we can stand up and do your funeral. And believe me, especially since I'm your pastor and I'll probably be doing it, it'll help me a ton. He wanted this song sung. He loved these scriptures. This meant a whole lot to him. Here's what he wants his children to know. Believe me, you'll help me a lot by preparing. You ought to do that. 
All right? It's sad, by the way, to have to do funerals. I still do them every now and then. Funerals of people that you don't know. Maybe people that never go to church. Prepare so that every, every part of your influence, is, is it, it, even to the very end, is as profitable as it can be. Secondly, doesn't this tell you a lot about the importance and influence of godly leadership? You know, we've taken, I've told you recently, let's don't make fun of Bill Clinton. We've been talking about this. Lori mentioned it again tonight. But can I tell you, you read 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, we have no business criticizing the king. What we should be doing is praying for him. I understand there's an evangelical leader that meets with him regularly. They said when Bill Clinton won the election, I just happened to be flipping through the stations, and, and, I happened to see, and they said, boy, he was awfully humble, and he looked almost shaken up. And they said he just got done meeting with his minister. Now, I don't know all that that means, but I do know this. The one guy that I've been reading about that he calls his minister is a guy that is sound in the faith as far as what the gospel is. Now, what are we supposed to do? You, could someone here convince me we're supposed to rant and rave? I got a couple letters from some of you telling me to stop praying for God's blessing and wisdom and thanking God for Bill Clinton. That You're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong. Okay? All of you. I'm just kidding. All right? <laughs> but you're wrong. And the, the reason I say that, the reason we say that is this. The Bible says, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known for everyone, for kings, and for those in authority. And so we need to be praying. And let's pray as we, I, I did this morning, but let's pray for good influence so that Bill Clinton, hey, was Bill Clinton any worse than you? Before God saved you? No. He's by, he needs the grace of God like any of us. We need to pray for that. What does God want? Bottom line from leaders. He wants righteous leaders and he wants those who fear the Lord. Thirdly, notice the importance of the covenant in a relationship with God. David can't stop talking about it. And notice how secure he says, and by the way, you know the covenant I read, guess what it said? I'm going to be quick about this, but guess what it said? It said, even if your sons totally turn astray and don't follow me, I'm still going to be faithful to them. But I'm going to discipline them. Now, what did he do with Saul? With Saul, listen to this, watch this. With Saul, he removed his love. But with the sons of David who are in the covenant, he will discipline them and get them back in line. You see the difference? My friend, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says, we're members of the covenant. And when we screw up, God disciplines us. And if we're not disciplined by the Father, we're bastards. That's what the Scriptures say. The fact is, there's a Heavenly Father that's going to discipline us when we go astray. And we can be thankful for that. He's not going to break the covenant. He's going to discipline us and get us back in line. And the fourth thing I want you to see is the, the surety of judgment. It's a bad time. It's a bad time when the wicked are rewarded and the righteous are unfairly treated. The government is supposed to punish evil men and reward good. But if the government doesn't do it, one day God will. We've got a God who will surely judge. God has been so good to us. He's been so good. He's, been, he's blessed us so much, hasn't he? And let's pray. Let's finish up. I, I, I am excited. I, I really am excited about finishing up 2 Samuel and getting into the, getting into the future. But we've got a bright future. We're going to stick with the word evermore and continue to pray evermore. Amen. God richly bless you. Don, what would be a good song to close on? Okay, let's stand and sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That concludes today's message from the Expository Word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.